If you'll turn in your Bibles to the Old Testament, if you've been following along in our Minor Prophet series, you probably know who I'm about to mention to you. If I mention someone from the Old Testament who had these characteristics, proud, stubborn, legalistic, merciless, disobedient, unthankful, grumbler, ill-tempered, cantankerous, and if he was old, we'd say old curmudgeon. <laughs> you probably would figure that out pretty quick, especially if you know which one's next. We come to Jonah. Sadly, those are characteristics of the Old Testament prophet Jonah. I know some of you were sitting there thinking, well, he's fixing the name off some old Baptist preacher. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> but we come to Jonah, and we want to look primarily at the first chapter tonight. This book only has four chapters. But I tell you, this is one of my favorite books of the Old Testament. And this is a book that is very popular when it comes to children's stories. And you think from Pinocchio all the way down to something I saw on one of these YouTube feeds just a few days ago about a guy being swallowed by a whale in a kayak. Did y'all see that one? I don't know how I get that stuff. But anyway, you know, I'm studying about Jonah and I start seeing a guy on YouTube getting swallowed by a whale. That's, they're watching me. They got to be. But seriously, there was a guy swallowed by a whale on a kayak, and the whale spit him right back out. So don't tell me that you can't be swallowed by a whale. So Jonah is thought by many to be just a legend. But I'm telling you why Jonah cannot just be a legend. If Jonah is a legend, then the resurrection is a legend. Because Christ forever ends any notion of this being a legend when he says that the only sign that would be given to the generation that he came into when he came into the world as the God-man, he said the only sign is going to be the sign of the prophet Jonah who was in the belly of the whale for three days and three nights. It is a fact. It is something. And look, it's not that hard to believe at all. If you believe that Jesus is resurrected from the grave, why is it so hard to believe that a man could be kept alive in the belly of a whale for three days and three nights if God himself died and gave his life and his body laid in a grave and then he took his life back up again if you believe that it's nothing to believe that a man can be kept alive in a whale <laughs> but as we've said often when we speak of jonah it's not the picture of from pinocchio you know where geppetto is sitting inside the whale and he's eating or you know frying marshmallows or whatever you know on the whale's tongue or in his belly it wasn't like that at all that's just a cartoonish display of it. So in the Bible stories from the kids' Bibles, you know, where they have cartoons and stuff, you know, the picture is not of Jonah sitting there, you know, enjoying his time or patiently waiting until he can get out of the well. It's quite different than that, quite more graphic than that. So we talk about Jonah tonight. And the title of this first message related to the book of Jonah is Jonah Goes to Whale School. Jonah Goes to Whale School. And let me just go ahead and say... You don't want to go to whale school, okay, like Jonah did. The old saying goes like this, and it's almost a Bible quote, but if you don't humble yourself, you will get humbled, right? And that, that's almost a Bible quote because we're supposed to continue to humble ourselves. But Jonah would not humble himself, so the Lord sent him to school. And it just so happened that it was whale school. You don't want to go to this school. It's a tough, tough place to learn the lessons of humility and life. So as we consider Jonah goes to whale school, let's read verse 1 of chapter 1 in the book of Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came unto Jonah 
the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness is come up before me. So let's consider who we have here. Jonah, as I said, which is kind of funny. Jonah's name means a dove, D-O-V-E. He's the farthest thing from a humble little dove that you could find. And if you notice some of the prophets, you're not given much information about them, but you have Jonah here is identified as the son of Amittai. And you can also read about Jonah in some other places. If you'll just do a search on the name Jonah, you can read about him in, in some of the, the king's writings and the chronicles. So there's obviously more evidence than just what the book of Jonah has for Jonah's existence. There's no question he existed. And we find out that he was from a place called Gath Hafer, which the word Gath Hafer means the place of wine pressing or digging for wine pressing. And interesting, I'm going to give you some geographical stuff. This was an, in an area that became known in 700 years down the road, 800 years down the road as Galilee. Okay. In Zebulon. It's a border town. Zebulon was one of the 12 sons, then, and he had a, a section of the promised land, Zebulon. And this is referred to Jesus in, in Matthew 4 and 13, where it says a light was seen in Galilee of the nations, Zebulon. Okay? So this is a border town, and this is Galilee, and it's about five kilometers north of what we know as Nazareth. So you're talking about Jonah coming up in the area where Jesus was raised in the area of Nazareth. Okay. And by the way, if this does anything for you, there's a little town over there today where they have a tomb of Jonah legend that if you go to that little town north of Nazareth, wherever that is in the Middle East, they'll take you to this place and say, well, this is Jonah's tomb, probably to make some money off the tourists. <laughs> but that's a legend over there that they actually know where Jonah's tomb is. The time that he wrote would have been it's open to some speculation, but it would have been around the time of Elisha or after, maybe in the time of uh, one of the good kings of Judah. But Jonah is in the northern area, okay? He's in the northern part in this uh, border town. Now, as I said, the descriptions of Jonah are not very good. You know, he was a very stubborn, stubborn, uh, legalistic type person. I was thinking about Brother Luke praying about opportunities and thinking about Jonah, <laughs> You know, God gives Jonah the most amazing opportunity that you could ever imagine to go and preach and possibly see an entire city repent. And he wouldn't do it. <laughs> That's a sad statement on Jonah's mentality, isn't it? So God says, arise and go to Nineveh. Now let's talk about Nineveh. I want you to get this very clear. Nineveh was the capital at this time of the nation of Assyria. And Assyria was one of the fiercest, most cruel nations that has ever existed on the face of the earth when it comes to warfare. I took a couple of quotes from the chronicles of the Assyrians. And this is what a couple of the kings of Assyria said in terms of how fierce they were in their conquest of nations around them. I mean, they were... They were terrible. I mean, you, you talk about war crimes. We're hearing a lot about that lately. Listen to this. This is from the mouth of one of the kings in one of these chronicles from way, way back uh, in, in the days either prior to Jonah or around that time. He says, I destroyed, I demolished, I burned. I took their warriors prisoner and impaled them on stakes before their cities. I flayed the nobles. 
that is the word that we would say today, fillet. <laughs> and what he means is he skinned them alive. He filleted them. I filleted their nobles, as many as had rebelled, and spread their skins out on the piles of dead corpses. Many of the captives I burned in a fire. Many I took alive. From some I cut off their hands to the right. From the other I cut off their noses, ears, and fingers. I put out the eyes of many of the soldiers. That's from a chronicle. Here's another one. I slew 260 fighting men. I cut off their heads and made pyramids thereof. I slew one of every two. Just arbitrarily, just going through, just killing one of every two that he comes across that are captive. These are captives, right? These are prisoners of war. I built a wall before the great gates of the city. I filleted the chief men of the rebels and I covered the wall with their skins. Some of them were enclosed alive in the bricks of the wall. Some of them were crucified on stakes along the wall. I caused a great multitude of them to be filleted in my presence, and I covered the wall with their skins. <laughs> I gathered together the heads in the form of crowns and their pierced bodies in the form of garlands. <laughs> I mean, these people were cruel. There was no war crime tribunal to stop these people from doing what they were doing. I mean, it's terrible the times we're living in and the things that are going on for sure and war crimes and whatever, but these guys were just unbelievable. So the reason I'm sharing that with you is I want you to see these were enemies of the nation of Israel. And these were men like Sennacherib, who was a king of Nineveh, who had attacked Israel at one point. So they were constantly in, in turmoil and living out there on a border town like Jonah would be living. You can imagine it was even more fearful of the enemy because they were on the border. Now, granted... Nineveh is about 550 miles away. If you look at a Middle Eastern map, where Nineveh, which is today it's modern day Mosul in Iraq, near there, okay? But they lived in a border town, and so they were in constant fear of somebody as fierce as the Assyrians to coming and doing something like this. So there was a hatred between these nations. Not only were they an enemy nation, but they were cruel and they were evil. And if you look at the history of the nation, of Nineveh or the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of uh, the Syrian empire. It's interesting. Uh, Nineveh, the name itself comes from, it is believed, the founder who was Nimrod. Back in the book of Genesis, the 11th chapter, it says that Nimrod founded Babylon or Babel and out from him went Nineveh. Okay, so this is the capital of Assyria at this time. And it eventually, you know, it came down from Nimrod. Now, at this time, it is believed that Nineveh was the largest city in the world. In the world. And this is only 1,500 years after the flood in Noah's day. All right? You say, I can't fathom that long. Well, we're about 2,000 years from when Christ was crucified and resurrected. And we understand many details and lots of facts and details about something that happened almost 2,000 years ago. Don't you know that 1,500 years from the flood of Noah, they still had a lot of this stuff fresh on their mind, you see? And this was the largest city in the world, quite possibly. And it, if you read in the Word of God about it, when Jonah gets there, Nineveh, it takes about three days to cross it. Some believe it was 60 miles wide and it had this incredible wall around it, 30-foot high wall, and it was a, a terrible, terrible city. Don't ever forget that the first city that was ever found, and I'm not saying all cities are full of murderers, but 
The first city that was ever founded was founded by a murderer, Cain. Okay? And a lot of bad things go on in the cities. Okay? Nineveh is no exception. Terrible things. The ruins of Nineveh today can be found and have been identified, as I said, in the Middle East, in Iraq, near Mosul. And there is actually, they think they've located a site in those ruins where there was a shrine for Jonah. So he was somebody that made quite an impact on the city of Nineveh. So in Nineveh, they most likely worshipped a fish god, which is interesting, is it not? Thinking about this is only 1,500 years from the time of the flood. They worshipped a man, a, a, a god that had the form of a man and the head of a fish. Uh, the Philistines called this god Dagon, okay, the fish god. They also worshipped a female god called Ishtar or Astarte, and she was the goddess of fertility. You know, you say, well, we just can't identify with all this stuff. The goddess of fertility means that they worshipped procreation, okay? They worshipped fornication. That was something that they worshipped, okay? You say, well, we can't identify with it today. The, the name of the gods of fertility today, in the 1980s, it was Madonna, okay? That's the modern day Astarte or Ishtar, all right? Nobody got that joke. Maybe they'll get this one. It's not a joke, though. It's for real. The modern day fertility goddesses today would be Beyonce and Miley Cyrus and anybody with the last name of Kardashian. I'm kind of trying to be funny, but trying to make the point to you. These fertility goddesses are still around today, okay? They worship fornication and people worship them. And listen, and if a person in their life tries to model them and follow them and be like them, they are worshipers of the fertility goddesses. They just have different names today. Beyonce, Miley Cyrus, Kardashian, you know, they're just different. Madonna from years ago, just different names. They're still around. They just don't appear in that form. They're not a statue at a temple. They are a little Twitter feed or something on somebody's phone or an app or something like that, see? Now, as I said, Nineveh was about 550 miles from Jonah's hometown, and it would be to the it would be to the east. To the west of Jonah's hometown would be the coast, the Mediterranean Sea. And so when God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, he's calling on him to go on quite a journey, a 500 plus mile journey. It's not like he's just going into the next town. Because when I, when I think about it, you know, I kind of think in a cartoonish way, I guess. And I'm thinking, well, you know, he just had to walk a little ways and go see them because he's a border town. But we're talking about, you know, 500 plus miles, which would take a long time on foot to get there. So what happens? You know, we've got this set up before us here. This enemy nation, this wicked nation, this fertility cult nation that worships fornication and also child sacrifice. That was part of the fertility cult of worshiping fornication. And they worship basically Nimrod who descended, you know, from the days of Noah. And so here they're the enemies of Israel and of, Jude, of Jerusalem and Judah. And so God says, I want you to go preach to them. And one of the things we ought to take note of right there is that whether it's the nation of Israel or Jerusalem as it was in those days, you know, God's got his eyes everywhere. He sees everything. 
He's not missing anything. You know, sometimes we think, well, God must be snoozing on this one. He didn't see this happen or he'd have, you know, brought some justice down. God never sleeps. He never slumbers. He sees everything. There's nothing that escapes his eyes. And he sees what's going on in this wicked, largest city on the face of the earth. And he is not happy with what's happening there. And we might respond if that was us. We might respond as the false god Zeus, you know, he would throw a thunderbolt and destroy somebody. That's kind of what we want. You know, let's just, just wipe them out. But our God is so merciful. His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And so what does he do? God, he calls upon his prophet and he says, I want you to go preach to him and tell him judgment's coming. And so he says, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me. And what does Jonah do? Jonah's about to go to whale school. He rose up to flee unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord and went down to Joppa and he found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare thereof, went down into it to go with them unto Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, let's, let's just pause here for a minute. You know, the Lord deals with us today through his word, right? But if for some amazing reason God ever came to you and told you to go do something, you better go do it. <laughs> You know, Jonah, God says, I don't know if he's laying there asleep or if he's out there in his, in his garden or what, or you know, doing whatever he normally does, preaching. God says, go to Nineveh. It could not be any clearer. And Jonah goes the opposite way. I just can't, that just seems amazing. But don't we do the same thing? We read in his word, it says, thou shalt not lie. <laughs> and then sometimes we wind up telling a little white lie. Or it says, do not do this or do not do that. Or you should not hang out with that type of person. Certainly, may we, may we back up just a minute and say, you know, the, the Word of God teaches us about modesty and humility and such. And yet here we have, you know, the Lord is angry at a nation that's following this fertility cult. The Lord says, if you follow those fertility goddesses like Kardashian and Beyonce and Cyrus, you're going to destroy your life. A young man or a young woman, you're going to destroy your life. And yet, millions just go after it. See, today God speaks to us in terms of His Word. He doesn't do like He did with Jonah and say, Jonah, go here. Jonah gets the Word from God and he goes the other way. That's, that's the direction. 550 miles to the east... And north is Nineveh. If Tarshish is what some think it to be, possibly the Straits of Gibraltar. That's possibly what, what Tarshish could be. That's over in Spain. Across the Mediterranean Sea, where the rocks of Gibraltar, the Straits of Gibraltar, where you come into the Mediterranean Sea from the Atlantic Ocean, some believe that that's what a Tarshish is a reference to. Joppa is a seacoast town where Jonah goes down from where he lives and he, he pays a fare, he pays the fare and he gets on a ship headed to Tarshish. And if that's where it is, it is maybe 1,500, 2,000 miles away. So God just said, just go 500 miles over here. I'm going to take care of you. And Jonah heads out something like 2,000 miles in the different, opposite direction. It's like he's lost his mind, is it not? But I want to tell you, any child of God can get in that condition. Any child of God can get so hard-headed and so calloused and so numbed by their own sin that they could go off in a direction like Jonah is doing. So the command is to go to Nineveh because the Lord wants him to cry against Nineveh for their wickedness has come up before the Lord. This reminds you of Sodom and Gomorrah, does it not? We know exactly what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. The violence 
and all of the, the terrible alternative lifestyle and such that was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah, that wickedness came up in a, as a stench before God just like Nineveh did. The same thing was going on in Nineveh. As a matter of fact, you can read in history where some famous historians condemned the practices that were going on in Nineveh because of the homosexual lifestyle, the different views that they had on gender. So it's no different than what we see today. Jonah rose up to flee unto Tarshish, which could be 2,000 miles in the opposite direction. And he went down to Joppa. Lo and behold, you know, it just had to be Providence, right? There was a ship there waiting down on the seacoast. And he had the money for the fare, just the right amount of money. And he gets on and he's thinking, this is just Providence. <laughs> well, it's not God's Providence, that's for sure. You better be careful about what Providence you're dealing with because Satan has a Providence too. You say, well, I know the Word of God says I shouldn't do this. But when I went down there, the ship was there. <laughs> and I just paid, I had the money, so I paid. The, that just, you know, doesn't that overrule what God's already told me? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. God will never lead you to do anything that's in contradiction to His Word. Never. He'll never lead you to have a relationship with someone who bears the characteristics that are in contradiction to the Word of God. He'll never lead you in a direction that would be harmful to you and hurt your relationship with the Lord. He will never do that. He will never lead you to think thoughts like many are thinking today of whether it's gender confusion or homosexuality or, or fornication, you know, you name it. He will never lead you to think thoughts that are contrary to His thoughts that are revealed in the Word of God. So many of God's children would benefit if they could just learn that simple little truth. And here Jonah is probably thinking, it's providence. <laughs> you know, I've got, a, I've got the money. Here's a fare. I bought it. I'm on the ship. I'm out of here. I don't have to worry about the Lord interfering with my plans. <laughs> well, he's, he's about to go to whale school. Look at Psalm 139, verse 7. I don't think that Jonah had, or maybe he did in the back of his mind, but he wasn't thinking much about 139 in verse 7 as he went the other way. This is what it says in Psalm 139 and 7. Now, I think this scripture would have been available to him. Whither shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell or the grave, behold, thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, I'll hide from God. Even the night shall be light about me. Yea, the darkness hideth not from thee, but the night shineth as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to thee. <laughs> For thou hast possessed my reins. <laughs> You can't, you can't flee from God. You can't get away from Him. You can't get away from what the Lord is calling you to do, like Jonah's trying to get away. You see? Jonah thinks he's getting away from the presence of God, but obviously Psalm 139 is not on his mind. Notice verse 4. But the Lord sent out a great wind into the sea, and there was a mighty tempest in the sea, so that the ship was like to be broken. Now listen to me very carefully. This is God's response to Jonah's disobedience. This does not mean that every wind that comes up or every tornado that comes up or every hurricane that comes up, it does not mean that God is calling that to come up. But God has the power to call any tornado or hurricane or wind to do His bidding. As I was studying this, I looked at Proverbs 30 and 4. Listen to this. Who hath ascended up into heaven or descended? Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? When I read that, I just got a picture in my mind 
of the Lord from heaven watching Jonah just shaking his head going, what is he thinking? He thinks he's going to get away from me. And the Lord just reaches out here and just grabs a fist full of wind and he just goes, and just sends it towards that little puny little ship out there in the sea. That's a little bit unnerving, is it not? Does God really have that much control? Yes, he does. He does have that much control. You understand that, I think it was back in, don't, don't hold me to this, but I think it was back in the 1600s whenever there was an assault being made on England and the ships of the Spanish Armada were coming and a storm comes up and wipes out the Spanish Armada. Can I sit here and tell you, well, that was God. You know, he gathered up some storm in his fist and winds and threw it at him. I can't tell you that for sure, but it's possible. You know, God can do anything he wants to do. I've thought about, I've mentioned to you before, the terrible disaster that occurred at Chernobyl that almost wiped out millions of people in Europe whenever that nuclear power plant malfunctioned, when men caused that nuclear power plant to malfunction. I mean, it almost poisoned water that was going to supply 50 million people. It could have been a global disaster. One little nuclear power plant. If you do a little bit of studying on nuclear power and things like that, it is unnerving. It's really, I, I can see why we were so scared in the 80s that, you know, the world was going to blow up by nuclear bomb. But at the same time, you've got to remember that this world, I'm not saying things will be perfect, and I'm not saying there wouldn't be a nuclear disaster, but this world will be here until God says it's not going to be. So if you could picture the, the men of this world, they shoot off these nuclear bombs towards each other, and, and it looks like the whole world's about to destroy the Lord who holds the winds in his fist can say, no more. And, and maybe to the world it might look like, you know, oh, a natural event occurred. I'm telling you, there is something beyond the natural events of this world. And it is God who controls nature. And that's a way more powerful force than any nuclear bomb. And the Lord just looks, grabs up some wind in his fist and he sends it down there. And it starts to afflict this little ship where his, this prophet, this rebellious prophet. Are you, you say, Brother Tim, are you telling me that this one guy was, was enough for the Lord to do this? Yes. You say, well, does that, could that apply to me? Yes. <laughs> you know, the Lord will chasten you. The Lord will, the Lord will not leave you alone. You see? The Lord will harass you and harass you and harass you until you finally just need to give up and just follow him. <laughs> see? That's what happens with Jonah. That's what happens when you go to whale school. The Lord sends the winds down to this little ship. That's God's response. And the ship is about to be broken up. And Jonah's just asleep down in the sides of the ship. By the way, it'd be an interesting study if you ever have a chance to do the comparisons between some of the things that happened in the life of Christ and in the life of Jonah. And you could not find two different characters, could you, than curmudgeon Jonah versus the Lord Jesus Christ. But there are a lot of comparisons from the gambling that goes on here in the presence of Jonah before they lift him up and throw him over into the deep to Jonah being asleep down on the sides of the ship you know, while the ship was about to be broken up. There's all kinds of comparisons here that are very interesting. And I don't think Jonah, when he was going through this, was thinking, well, you know, I'll probably be a good comparison down the road one day to the Savior, the Son of God. <laughs> no, he was not thinking that at all. So the mariners were afraid and cried every man unto his God and cast forth the wares that were in the ship into the sea to lighten it of them. But Jonah was going down into the sides of the ship and he lay and was fast asleep. So the shipmaster came to him and he said, What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. 
if so be that God will think upon us that we perish not. And they said everyone to his fellow, come and let us cast lots that we may know. By the way, Proverbs 16 and 33 tells us that the lot is cast in the lap, but the dispensation thereof is of the Lord. That does not mean that every time somebody casts the lot or rolls the dice or gambles by any means that the Lord is in that. It doesn't mean that. But in this circumstance, the Lord has the power to direct how this lot is cast. They're trying to figure out who is the reason for what this is going, all this is happening to them. And that's pretty desperate, isn't it? <laughs> when you go to gambling to try to figure out why something's happening to you, you're in a bad spot. <laughs> but the lot falls to Jonah. And they say to him, tell us, who are you? What causes this evil upon us? What is your occupation and whence have you come? And he says, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the land and the dry sea. Then were the men exceedingly afraid and said unto him, why have you done this? And you're, a, let me just say this too. You're in a bad spot when the heathen of the world that don't even profess a belief in the true and living God are condemning you for your foolish actions. You're in a bad spot. I mean, even the heathen who don't even call upon Jehovah. Now, I, now I believe with all my heart that, that at least some of these men were children of God. I don't have any doubt. You'll see at the end of the chapter. I don't have any doubt they were children of God, but they were ignorant. They didn't understand Jehovah. And here are these ignorant men who don't understand anything about the true and living God. And they say, what are you doing, man? Are, are you, have you lost your mind? Why are you not serving your God? I tell you, I think that's where a lot of God's children are today. <laughs> Even the heathen can look and see. What's going on? And they said to him, Jonah said, they said, why have you done this? Verse 10. For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he told them. And then they said, as we bring our thoughts to a close here tonight, then they said unto him, what shall we do unto thee that the sea may be calm unto us? For the sea wrought and was tempestuous. Can you picture these guys? They're just back and forth. The wind, the rain, the lightning, the thunder. And they're, uh, they're not whispering. What do you think we ought to do with this guy? What do you think? They're yelling their heads off. What should we do? We're fixing to die. <laughs> and he says to them, take me up and cast me forth into the sea. Sacrifice me. <laughs> right? He says, sacrifice me and the sea shall be calm unto you. For I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. But the men continue to row. The men continue to try to make this thing work. And they're, they're yelling at each other, what do we do? And so finally, they, they're just like, we just don't have any choice. Now, I've said this before. You know, Jonah was not being brave here. You know, Jonah would rather drown and die than to go and do what God has told him to do. That's a sad state of affairs, isn't it? He just killed me. You know, sacrifice me. I'll, they'll talk about me for years to come about how they were out on the ocean and the sea was there and the great prophet Jonah was cast into the sea and everybody lived and survived and he died a noble death because he was willing to sacrifice himself. I tell you, the old devil's in the details, isn't he? Maybe that's what Jonah's thinking. He's not being brave. He's self-focused and self-centered. And so they cry to the Lord, verse 14. We beseech thee, O Lord. We beseech thee. Let us not perish for this man's life. And late, you talk about situational ethics. These guys are thinking, we're fixing to kill this guy. He's told us to kill him. He's, this is assisted suicide. We, it will assist him in suicide. Oh Lord, please. We're fixing to be, you know, we're fixing to be conspirators and possible what could be construed as murder here. Lord, please don't hold this innocent blood. Notice there's another mention. There's a mention of blood right there. Another comparison to Christ. For thou, O Lord, hast done as it pleased thee. So I could just see Jonah's probably got a little bit of smirk on his face thinking, 
I showed God. I showed God. You know, now he's going, he's, I'm making God kill me. If you think I'm crazy talking about how his mentality is, just look at him in a couple chapters when he says I would rather die than do what you tell me to do. So I can just see Johnny, he's got a smirk on his face and thinking, ha, 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 you know, I finally don't have to do what God told me to do. I'm going to go to heaven. Everything's going to be great. The men take him up. They cast him forth into the sea. And as soon as his body hits the water, all that rage and water just, just goes calm. See? And they fear exceedingly and offer a sacrifice unto the Lord. You see, that's how I know some of these men were children of God. They just didn't know anything about Jehovah. And I just wondered, <laughs> I, sometimes I read a little more into things than I should probably. But when the sea went calm, and there goes Jonah, hits the water, and glub, 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 he starts going down. You think maybe one of those mariners just kind of hung over the side and watched him as he disappeared? I would have done that. You know, if I throw anything in the water, I always try to see it as far as it'll go down. <laughs> you see Jonah just sitting, uh, the, the mariners, you know, looking over the side. Oh man, what, what a noble guy. You know, he... He just sacrificed himself to say, what was that? <laughs> a huge shadow comes upon Jonah. And all of a sudden, whoop, he's gone. Now you'd be thinking again, what kind of noble guy that was. Yeah, he was a disobedient guy. They already knew that. But, boy, I would have thought the Lord's out to get that guy. Not only did we throw him in the water to drown him, now he's been swallowed by a whale. <laughs> Jonah's now officially enrolled in whale school. <laughs> Again, if you have a problem thinking, well, could that really happen? Yes. I'll leave you with this little story. I've got a friend who was a, is a diver. And he was trying to get me to go diving with him at one point. And when he told me about the great white shark that he encountered, I said, you forget it, man. You, you, I'm never going to go with you after telling me about a great white shark. But he was diving one time on a when he, uh, he was spearfishing in a tournament and diving, and he and his buddy were swimming along, and they were among a school of fish and 60, 70 feet down or whatever, and at about 30 miles an hour over the top of him, about two feet, comes this gigantic whale. Just, you know, just out of the blue, snuck up on them and just, boom. I mean, he said it was massive, and it had his mouth wide open. He said, he said Tim, it could have swallowed two or three of us. It was so big. So don't think for a second that a whale is not big enough to swallow a man. Even in history, they've, at times they have found suits of armor in the, in the bellies of whales. Okay? Then the question is, well, yeah, if they could swallow a man, for sure. But could a man be kept alive in a whale for three days and three nights? You bet he could. If the Lord's keeping him alive. Could a man go into the grave and die and then take his body back up again. The God-man did that. See? So, don't think for one second that this is a legend or some kind of cartoonish thing. This is serious business. And child of grace, you don't want to go to whale school. Verse 17, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish, or a whale, to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. And as a foreshadowing, that is exactly what Christ points to as the only sign that He would give to the generation that He came to. As Jonah was in the belly of the whale three days and three nights, so shall the Son of Man be in the heart of earth three days and three nights. So we'll conclude there tonight. And next time we'll begin to look at the lessons that Jonah learned while he was in whale school.